Are you a business owner looking for real advice and input? You're in the right place. From concept to launch to growth, funding and beyond. Welcome to Startup Hustle with your hosts. One once sold a business for $150 million. The other, the author of Million Dollar Bedroom. Here are your hosts of Startup Hustle, Matt DeCourcy and Matt Watson. And we're back with another episode of Startup Hustle. Matt DeCourcy here live in San Francisco continuing our series about San Francisco-based businesses and TechCrunch. With me at the moment, I've got Mufi Gadiali, who is the co-founder and CEO of Electrify. Mufi, what's up? Hey, Matt. Happy to be on the podcast. Did I say your name correctly? Perfect. For those of you listening, I, I did practice it about 20 times on the way in. So um, anyway, Mufi, we met in Kansas City. Now here we are in, in San Francisco, your company Electrify. And I want to spell that out. So those of you that are listening, you know, I love it when you're interactive. And I want you to go to Electrify, that's E-L-E-C-T-R-I-P-H-I dot A-I. So Electrify dot A-I and check out what Mufi's company does. Now, with that, Mufi, we met in Kansas City. Your business has been selected by Launch KC and partnered with Black & Beach on a clean tech accelerator. Congratulations. Oh, thank you so much. It's been an, an honor and a pleasure to work with Launch KC and with the team at Black & Beach. They've been phenomenal. Yeah, Black & Beach is a cool company. And you know, for those of you that um, are listening outside of Kansas City, Black & Beach is a, a privately held uh, whale when it comes to engineering and architecture, um, I think they have around $5 billion of revenue, but they do a whole lot of different stuff and they've branched out recently. They have some internal startups and they are the sponsor of the clean tech cohort for launch KC. And your company was one of, I think seven. That's correct. One of seven. So uh, now with that, uh, when I first met you, you, informed me and educated me about something I'd never really considered. And there's so much buzz and everything around clean tech right now, but you'd brought, you'd brought forth a, a particular challenge that I didn't even realize existed. And I'm going to let you go ahead and, and inform us about what Electrify does, but and you know the problem I'm referencing. So I, like I said, never even considered it and what would happen if we all switch over to electric cars. So Go ahead and uh, give us a little background on Electrify and the problem that you solve. Absolutely. So as you know, if you look at what's happening in, in transportation uh, fleets, so any, any vehicles that are owned by public government or private entities are, are slowly moving to electric. And all of these guys have done the math in terms of, you know, what the cost of operating an electric vehicle versus a conventional diesel or gasoline vehicle is. And it's very obvious that it's it's much cheaper to own. And this is true, you know, if you look at uh, uh, ownership on the public domain, right? So if you look at Teslas or Evi, uh, Chevy Bolts uh, or Nissan Leafs, the cost of operating those vehicles is almost zero because there's no oil changes, there's no transmission fluid changes. Uh, the the only thing that you really need to to do is check your batteries, rotate tires, and replace tires. And that's pretty much it. So that's point number one. Point number two is the cost of energy for for consumer vehicles is also about a third of the cost of uh, uh, of gasoline. So once you buy an electric vehicle, you're never going back. And that was my personal experience as well. 
so this same sort of philosophy is moving towards the commercial sector where all these large fleets, which includes school buses, transit buses, delivery vehicles, uh, airport vehicles, drage, trucks, construction uh, equipment, they all see the math and they see the, the opportunity to move to electric. And so that part, of, uh, that part of transition is almost imminent. And if anybody had a doubt, uh, the, the news about Amazon buying 100,000 electric vans just, you know, just settled that, that debate. So, and that was, by, by the way, the, the biggest uh, electric vehicle order in history. Uh, so that momentum is already building and the focus is shifting from vehicles to electricity. And that is creating a whole new set of problems which are really interesting. So if you look at how uh, uh, you know, a public tra transit bus operates, the, the vehicle comes into the yard, the fuel diesel, and then it goes into the parking bay. That does not work with electricity because your how you fuel, at what time you fuel, how fast you fuel electrons uh, varies dramatically. And the costs of fueling these vehicles can be, can be phenomenal. So just to give you, you know, a real world example, a transit bus, uh, you know, a public bus that, that moves around a city has a battery, which is about six to 700 kilowatt hours. Uh, that vehicle comes in probably at 10 p.m. at night, leaves at maybe five or 6 a.m. So you've got roughly about six to eight hours to fill up that battery. In terms of the sheer amount of energy, that's the energy that's used by a single family home in a month, right? And you multiply that by hundreds of vehicles and you see the, the enormity of the problem. And so what's needed now is how will all these vehicles be charged in a more sophisticated manner? So if you look at the, uh, the future, all of these large parking yards will turn into charging depots where vehicles come in, they plug in, and they charge overnight, but in a, in a more intelligent manner where you charge just the right amount of energy, you charge at the right time so that your costs are low, uh, and you make sure that it's ready for the next day. And all of this is actually a software problem. So the, you, know, you need a software that will manage the buses, that will manage the, the, the utility rates, and that will manage the charging infrastructure, and that's what we do. So is the main problem here, the, and I understand the sophistication of it, meaning like, okay, charging, in your example of buses, but this isn't the only example. That is just one example. They're talking about a whole entire, like if the world switched to electric cars overnight, would we have more of an issue with the strain that that put on the power grid or our inability to efficiently make an appropriate amount of electricity, or is it both? Uh, it's actually both. So what's interesting uh, with electricity relative to you know, diesel or gasoline is that uh, electrons are dynamically generated, right? And so they're generated and then they are pushed over transmission lines. If you look at history, you know, you know, oil was extracted from the ground and then was stored in containers. That's not possible right now. And so what happens is the utility is generating just enough energy so that it can meet the demands. Um, and what they are trying to do is minimize the peaks and the valleys. So how do you fill up the valleys and how do you, you, know, you cut the peaks down? And this problem becomes really huge when you have all of these large fleets showing up, right? And, and a fleet could be the equivalent of multiple cities worth of energy that shows up. And the only sort of way to manage this is in a more sophisticated manner where you say, okay, we'll flatten the peaks and fill the valleys 
so that your energy is leveled through the night or through the dwell time. Now, what is interesting is if you project to the future, everything will become a fleet. So in, in, in Silicon Valley, this is an obvious thing to most people is the consumer ownership of vehicles is, is going away. So the fact that we are using Ubers and Lyfts today, and that will translate into the future into autonomous vehicles where we have a subscription to a transportation service as opposed to owning a vehicle. All of those vehicles become fleets, in fact, much larger fleets. And those will also need to be charged. So the the problem is not going away. In fact, it's going to get much bigger as everything turns to, to fleets. So I find that to be interesting. And it's definitely, you know, I wasn't aware that you, you look at, you know, the example of the bus and 600 kilowatt hours and that being as much or more energy than a home. Um, so obviously the, the amount of energy that's needed to, to keep these things going is, is high. Um, now with the, with the solution that you guys have created, is this based on machine learning or some, I mean, are you, is this predictive analysis? How, how are you, are you looking at past patterns and records that are trying to give a better idea to, is it, this is, is this more about the, the manager and manage the owner of the fleet or for the, the power company? Uh, it's actually all of the above, and I'll tell you why. So uh, here's here's sort of the big picture, right? If you step back and look at what's happening with just electrification, we are in on the cusp of the biggest energy transition in history, right? From from oil to electrons, and if you see the entire value chain from the from the the companies that produce energy to the distribution of energy to vehicles and to management the entire value chain is being disrupted right now because suddenly the Chevrons and Shells uh, and, and BP will be replaced by your you know, KCPNL and PG&E and SoCal Edison because they are the local generators of, of energy. Distribution will change as well because now instead of gas stations, you'll have switch electrical switch gear. Vehicles are changing as well. Uh, and then the ownership of vehicles will change as well. So in a really interesting way, electrification is, is becoming a platform for uh, an industry-wide disruption. The common thread that ties everything together is data and intelligence. Because every bit of information is, is really be, is going to be, how can you ex- extract meaningful data out of this? And how can you make smart decisions? And I'll give you a, a very specific example. So today, when you buy a car, you never worry about the range. Because your you know, your 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 tank holds ten to ten ten to fifteen gallons of, of diesel or gasoline, but with electric vehicles it's going to change because your battery will start to lose range over time. So the vehicle that gave you you know two hundred fifty miles of range five years down the road road might not give you that much range, uh, and this is especially true with uh, with fleets where they are operated on very high utilization. Like when, you know, when you and I use a car, we drive uh, less than 10% of the time of the day because either it's parked at home or parked at work or somewhere. But these fleets are always on the road. In fact, they make money when the fleets are on the road. So their utilization is going to be incredibly high. And so it'll have some really interesting impact on the, on the battery, on the driver, on environmental conditions. And so all of these are sort of nuggets of data that make the whole problem much more fascinating for us. And this is where machine learning comes in. So as we are deploying into these fleets, we are getting the data and we are processing processing it 
to make better decisions for our customers in the sense that uh, we know a vehicle is going to behave very differently depending on what the temperature is outside. If it's too, too hot or too cold, the vehicle may not charge at the fastest rate possible. Uh, when it's out on the road, if it's a cold day or a hot day, the HVAC may take more energy than propulsion of the vehicle. And so we're gathering all of this data and we are making predictive analysis to, as to how much vehicle, how much the energy will be consumed by the vehicle the next day based on future conditions. So, and little things like driver. Driver behavior can make a, almost a 50% impact in the efficiency of the vehicle just on their style of driving. So there's, you know, these are just the known data sets that we know right now. And there'll be a lot more that we'll just discover in the next few years. And all of that goes back into our machine learning model and it, it basically guides us and our customers in terms of how you know, they'll electrify their fleets and how they'll operate them at, at the best utilization. So I think a lot of people, you know, the terms obviously AI, um, artificial intelligence, ML, machine learning, uh, these are buzzwords, not only, you know, in San Francisco, but in Kansas City, but everywhere. But I think that they're, they're really misunderstood. Um, when we think of, uh, I think a lot, you know, you see people making, I don't know, you see some robot by, is it Boston Dynamics? Is that who makes the robot that like was just doing flips and somersaults that I just saw on Facebook yeah. and people are like, oh, plug a little artificial intelligence into that. And now, and now the Terminator is going to take over and Skynet will become aware and we're all going to die. I think people don't really understand the, the, the basic component components of machine learning and AI. Can you give us a really simple example of like how data is correlated and like, like how that actually works? Yeah, I mean, and we don't have to we don't have to get like in depth or proprietary, but you know, if we had to explore, all right, so pretend that I am a five year old because my my technical ability when it comes to machine learning or AI is is slightly above that. How would you explain how Electrify uses machine learning? Like, what is what is an example of the? I know you gave you gave a basic example of it, but like, but. How does predictive analysis or any of that machine learning work for the average bear? Yeah, so you're totally right. You know, uh, AI, machine learning, neural networks are all the buzz right now. Uh, but there's a good reason why. Um, so the basic concept of, of neural networks and AI and machine learning uh, is about 30 years old, actually 40 years old. It was, it was invented in the 1960s. And the, the idea was to mimic how the human brain operates, right? And the human brain operates, if you, if you look at how a, you know, a child learns, it's through trial and error, right? You, you, know, you, know, you, you touch something that's hot and you realize, okay, don't touch that thing again because it is to have bad consequences. And so you train your model in the head to do certain things and these, new, these neurons fire and they create pathways. Uh, that's, uh, AI and machine learning replicates a lot of that but in a computer software algorithm. What's changed though in the last, I guess, last five years or so is actually two things. One is our ability to actually track and gather data. So now we have phones that, 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 you know, that track all this information. You have uh, IoT, Internet of Things, which is also another buzzword. All of these sensors, there are embedded sensors, cameras, uh, sound recording devices. All of these sort of bits and pieces of, of uh, of sensors are collecting the data. So now we're getting real world data from, from everywhere. So that's part one. Part two is the connectivity into the cloud and processing of, of all of this data. 
So not only can we grab this data, but we can make sense of it very quickly. Um, so so how we employ this is we take a very specific application for AI. And so there is general purpose AI, which is you know, it's what you described as the terminator taking over the world. I don't know if it's general purpose, but sure. Yeah, well, that's probably the, the doomsday example, I guess. Um, but if you, if you really think about it, uh, those, that's, that's sort of the Uber AI that can do everything. So it's, you know, it's, and it's constructed of many different AI models. Uh, what we're doing is, uh, is a very narrow focus. So, uh, and the, the other buzzword is enterprise AI, where you just take machine learning and apply it to a very specific model. So what we do is we take uh, existing data and we train the quote unquote machine to learn certain things. So for instance, uh, one of the things that we are working on right now is uh, when a vehicle plugs into a charging station, there's a specific way it charges. So there is, it's called a charging curve. So it, it tells you every uh, one minute interval, how much energy is delivered into the battery. And if you can collect enough of those charging curves, you can train the machine to tell you what, what vehicle it is. So just by knowing a, a charging curve, we can say, oh, this is vehicle ID you know, 235 because I've seen this charging curve many, many times before. Hmm. So it's a, it's a very simplistic example of how you can use machine learning to train models to do certain specific things. Now, that's, I think that's where AI and machine learning is taking off is in these sandboxed sort of scenarios where the inputs are known and you're just trying to get a, a you know a very high degree of accuracy for that particular prediction and that's what we do okay so and and before i forget because i i didn't mention this earlier this episode of startup hustle is brought to you by fullscale.io which is the company i own with someone not named mufi uh but you know we we do we help a lot of companies like yours build a lot of different types of technology um these these things are you mentioned machine learning being 30 years old or the concept of it for most practical application it's not you know most people haven't been using these principles for a long time like an example uh, and and for those of you listening you can go back and uh, find our episode on computer vision with Joel Tepley, who's uh, uh, from Kansas City, and he has 10 years of experience doing computer vision that uses neural nets and all this kind of stuff. It, it really will make your head spin when you listen to what an expert he is. But for people that have 10 years of experience with this type of technology, they're really hard to find. So, or, or at least, uh, and, and Mufi's smiling right now, are, are they? So no, no, that's a very interesting question. And so the, the you know the hottest skill set right now in in Silicon Valley uh, and across I guess any tech company is uh, data scientists. Yeah, people who look at data and build models. We, we just hired our first data scientist at full scale. So and then so you know what, what's what's really interesting is uh, in Silicon Valley you get these really interesting perspectives. So we were working with another company called Pixeria Pixera AI, and they're essentially trying to uh, create an intelligent data scientist. So who can do the job of, you know, of a data scientist? So uh, what they're creating is a, is a platform for create, you know, for testing models uh, and then making sure that the, mo and, and picking the best model that fits the, the application. 
So, I mean, it, typically what a data scientist will do, will look at your data sets and look at the problem you're trying to solve and propose a model that'll work the best. And then it's a trial and error. These guys are trying to mach- apply machine learning on itself. They say, okay, can you try out all these models? And then the AI tells you which model is, is the best. So uh, in some ways, you know, I, I think the, the data scientist uh, job might actually, you know, they might work might, themselves. Might take care of itself. Right, exactly. I mean, sure, sure. I th- yeah, and that that's going to be interesting to figure out. Um, now, in, in that whole, you know, you mentioned that now in the interim, so we're here once again, and, and we're at Lemnos Labs, and this is a really cool place. This is like the workshop that I wish that I always had. Um, I mean, it is, and I'll give you just a, a, a little word picture here. So we're in an office, and and for those of you listening to our, our TechCrunch and our, our Trip to the Valley series, we're doing a lot of field recording here, so our, our sound quality is going to be different. The uh, one we recorded this morning, they were doing construction on the building next to us, and we were right next to a busy street. But So we're here um, in between what we would say downtown San Francisco. We're not quite as far as Mountain View and, and stuff like that, but... Um, there's a wide open workshop here and I, uh, this here at Lemnos, uh, and maybe you can give us a better explanation of Lemnos. It, um, there are several other companies like yours. I stood in your lobby and looked at some of the, um, there was a screen that was just kind of detailing the different companies and they're all doing really cool stuff. But I mean, there's a maker space here as we could call it, you know, there's a, almost like a wood shop up front. Yep. And, um, when we came in and you were giving me a tour in the back, they were, I don't know, they're building something. You show me some, some delivery vehicles and, and different stuff. So I, I think that's pretty cool. Um, so, you know, with that, you're, you're in an area where people are, are making and developing a lot of physical things, but you told me in the midst of that, that, uh, electrify, and once again, go to electrify.com. That's, uh, um, E L E C T R I P H I dot A I not com, sorry, dot AI. And you said you're a pure software company though. So, um, you know, and, and, and until AI starts to solve the problem of replacing its, itself with data scientists, you're here in probably the most competitive tech space in the world. Um, how do you, how do you handle and deal with the competing with all these other companies that are out here for talent or do you? Uh, that's a, that's a great question. And I think um, uh, so. We're competing with you know Facebook and Google sure. and, and Amazon here. I've heard of all and, those companies. And, yeah, and so it's. Um, I think a lot of it is you know about selling the vision and um, and I'll give you the example of how I got our co-founder to come on board, right? And his name is Sanjay. Yeah, he's our CTO. And he's actually on his way to Kansas City right yeah, now, right? Precisely. Yeah, yeah. He's, on, he's on a flight right now to to Kansas City. And uh, uh, he uh, and he's an you know, incredibly accomplished software uh, leader. He's been in the valley for three decades. He could walk into any company and, and land a job within minutes. And one of the things uh, that he told me was he wants to do something you know, really meaningful. And when he looks back, um, uh, you know, it'll be something that he would regret not doing. So, and the reason that I started Electrify was, um, uh, so actually I, I was pitching this, you know, this idea of electrification to, to a bunch of folks and, and one of my mentors, uh, at one point he told me, 
this is a really interesting idea and you should do it. And I said, you know, I, I'm still debating is it, you know, if I should do it or not. And so he said, try the regret minimization principle, or regret minimization framework, and you should Google it. And so I, you know, I went and Googled it. And then, uh, it's, it's a story about how Jeff Bezos started Amazon. And so this is, you know, rewind back to 1992 or 1993 when, when Jeff Bezos was working at a, at a company called D.E. Shaw. And he was uh, pretty high up. He was uh, an investment banker at that time. And he heard about this thing called the internet and the, you know, he did some research around it and he said, okay, this thing is fascinating. It's growing fast. Not a lot of people know about it. And he wrote a business plan to sell books on, on this thing called the internet at that time, 1992 or 1993, right? He has this conversation with his, uh, with his boss and, um, and the story goes that they, they go to Central Park, they, they walk for two hours and in the end, his boss tells him, listen, smart, you're a smart guy, you'll make something out of this, but the, the stage at which you're in right now with your career is just insane to walk away. And so he went back home and he kind of, you know, sort of struggled in his mind in terms of how he should, uh, should make this decision. And he came up with the regret minimization framework. And the concept is you fast forward to your future self, say, you know, when you're 80 years old or 60 years old, you pick a number, right? And look back at all the decisions you make in your life or you made in your life and see if there were some decisions where you would regret not doing those. And he, you know, he looked back and he said, yeah, you know, I regret not doing this thing on the, you know, with the internet. And I had the same sort of feeling when I looked, when I said, okay, if I, you know, if I fast forward, look back and say, you know, oh, you know, there was a startup idea that I should really should have done. And I did not. To me, that was sort of the final moment of you gotta do this, right? And so to loop back, this is, this is how we hire folks in our company as well as, Will you regret not joining us? Forget about the paycheck and forget about the options and forget about everything else. Of all the career choices that you'll make or all the decisions that you'll make in your life, will this be the one that you'll regret not making or not making? Uh, and interestingly, you know, folks who come back, they, you know, some people say, yeah, you know, this is too early for me, it's too risky and they walk away. There are some who come back, but they come back with a renewed vigor to say, this is awesome and this is more than the money, this is more than you know, options and making it rich. This is something I want to be part of. Uh, the other thing that's interesting in the Valley is there's no shame for failure. And so I, uh, you know, as, as sort of I was doing my research, I talked to my mentors and some of them are pretty high up in, in large companies, not Silicon Valley companies. And one of them was running a, a $10 billion division. <clears throat> and I, you know, I pitched it to him and he said, looks like a great idea. And he said, I'm envious. I said, you know, you're running, you know, such a huge division. He said, I'm envious because I would love to do a startup like you. Sure. So I think, you know, it's, it's, it's really, you know, about emotions is about uh, getting people who come in with, with, you know, a sense of more than just doing the job. And, and, and for any startup, you need folks like that, right? Folks who wake up in the morning and go, I'm going to kill this thing because this is you know, something awesome. And when I look back, it'll be, in, in, you know, it'll be, a, uh, it'll be an experience to remember. So, you're, you're I know just, it was very long-winded, but... No, I'm no, gonna... that was beautiful. And, and I love that, you know, the no shameful failure. Um, that's something we really spend a lot of time talking about with our guests and just in general. Like, I mean, really, 
no matter who you are or what you do in business, you're going to experience an extreme amount of failure. I mean, it's just the way it goes. And, you know, so many people have reached out to myself or the other Matt, Matt Watson, and have sent messages that said, you know, thank you for, for the podcast and all the different people that you asked to talk about failure because it made me feel like I'm not one. Uh, and that's, and that's pretty, that's pretty, uh, you know, straightforward. And I think it's a pretty normal part of things, but really what I heard out of that was, you know, there's a level of passion that can be generated and fulfilled within one's life when you're doing something that feels meaningful or, or sometimes it's being a part of something that is a little different than being one of 40,000 people at Megacorp, you know, or whomever. So, uh, and that's an interesting, uh, you know, that's an interesting outlook. The, uh, and this is our second recording of the day it was an, a, a, another fellow co cohort um, from Launch KC that we met with this morning that, that answered the question in a similar way. So, you know, I find that to be interesting because I think that the perception from the outside looking in is that Google, Facebook, Amazon, and these other companies swoop all these people up. And I'm kind of, I'm kind of having a bit of a paradigm shift on, on that being the truth. Like maybe that is why they have to pay people so exorbitantly is because it's like, hey, this, uh, you're going to come, maybe you're going to have some security, you're going to do some stuff, but you might not get a sense of fulfillment the same way from doing other stuff. Um, is, is that seem to be a sentiment across the whole area here? I think so to some extent. I think uh, a lot of it uh, is how you're driven by what you want to do. And, you know, by no means, you know, I worked for Amazon and I worked for HP as well for, for many years. And, uh, and I learned a lot how to do things and how not to do things as well. Yep. So I think all of these companies have a place uh, and you definitely would don't want, uh, you know, a company like Google, which has, you know, so many, uh, you know, billions of users and, you know, so many product lines run by a bunch of startups who are doing crazy things. So there is, you know, there is a balance for, for both sides. Uh, the, the thing that I tell my team is give it a hundred percent, like be fully committed to it. And then you let the universe, you know, give you give you the the verdict on 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 where you land, right? But if you're not fully committed to it, whether you're at a Google or an Amazon or, or an Electrify or Extensible Energy or whatever, then you're you're just not giving 100% to the, the the company, to the team, to the product, and and most importantly to your customers as well, right? Uh, and different things make different people happy. There are there are folks who'll be more than happy working for a company like HP because that's you know that's what they choose and that's the kind of lifestyle they want which is perfectly okay. We need people like that as well. We don't want everybody to do startups either. So <laughs> I feel like everyone already did on some days. Yeah. 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 And, and it's, you know, it's following through. Um, startups are not easy by any means. And, uh, you know, there's a, you see a lot of these uh, stories on TechCrunch where, you know, there was a billion dollar exit and, um, you know, you know the, the two founders made, gobs of money and stuff like that. But most folks don't see the pain and, and sort of the, some of the tragedies behind that happen, right? And for us, it's a roller coaster. I can tell you right now, uh, we are in the middle of raising uh, our fundraise and you go in and you make the pitch to the VC and you, you, you walk out thinking, 
we nailed that, man. This is it. We are going to get the check. And then a week later, they go, oh, no, thanks. But this isn't the right thing for us right now. Right. Or, or what are some of the common things that call us back when you get gain a little more traction? Um, we've seen this, you know, just a lot of different things. And, exactly. And there's 10 million reasons why they give you those answers. But yeah, I mean, I'm a sales guy. So I'm, I have a level of immunity to failure and no and next and all these things that some people don't. Um, and, you know, it's, uh, it, it's, it's tough. You know, the second episode of Startup Hustle, and I think, so we're recording this today, we're in the first week of October, and episode two is titled Getting Funded Sucks. So in the history of Startup Hustle, we got that out of the way pretty early. We are trying to paint a really realistic view. Um, you use the term roller coaster. Um, it is definitely that. Um, and I think that being an entrepreneur and a startup founder doing something that um, isn't opening a subway franchise is not for most, it's not for everyone. It's not for the faint of heart. It will definitely challenge your sanity on, on uh, some days. And you talk about that, uh, you, you read the article about that billion dollar exit and you don't talk, you don't hear about, and you know what, you, you use a really great word, the tragedy. Because there is a cost and a price to success. Success does demand payment in advance. I have yet to prove this wrong. And, and one definition of success varies from one person to the next. And then sometimes being successful at one thing means that you've completely abandoned another thing. So with that, how do you find ways to have some kind of healthy balance in your life? Or, or do you? So that so this is an an ongoing struggle, uh, and I'll be very open with it. Yeah, um, me too. The, the few things that I've learned is one is having a a really solid co-founder, uh, and that can make all the difference. And so, and I'll just give you an example of what happened yesterday. You know, we we did that pitch uh, to another VC last week, walked out incredibly confident, and then Monday we got an email saying, uh, "No thanks, we love you guys and love love love, but we're not going to invest." And, you know, it's just, it's very hard to take rejection, even though we've taken a lot more of that in the past. But then you have your co-founder who, who calls, he calls you and goes, that's bullshit. We'll do this, man. This is, you know, this is just one. Let's learn from this and move on. And just somebody saying that gives you all the motivation to go, okay, I need to get out of my head because this guy, you know, he can see some, you know, some silver lining here and we've got a long, you know, long marathon ahead of us. So I think co-founder would be definitely one. The second that I use personally is meditation. So I spend a good 15 or 20 minutes meditating in the morning, just clearing my head. Um, and it also helps you sort of ground in, in what's real and you know, what's, what's playing in your mind as well. Because the, the most important thing is winning inside your head more than outside. And Smart people can see that, you know, smart VCs can see your body language they see how confident you are. They see your poise. And especially at the early stage where we are at, they're investing in the team. That's basically it. Like the number one is team and everything else, you know, is secondary, right? And so, you know, meditation, just uh, sort of listening to uh, sort of talks and, and talking to people who've done this before. So having sort of a good network of mentors, is really something that, that at least helps me personally. So you use the term meditation and then some people understand that and some don't. 
there's a real easy way to, to go about that, whether it's true meditative state or not. And it's two words, just sit, turn off everything around you, turn off your phones, turn, turn off the, the PC tower, all of it, and just sit. And you mentioned 15, 20 minutes. That's usually around the amount of time that it takes to clear all the shit that's already built up in there. And you, you really can find once you quiet all the noise. So I, I, I'm an ADD guy. And so that means my, I wouldn't want, I would not want to have an outside look at what's going on in my head because it feels very, it would look very chaotic and it feels very chaotic, but sometimes that removal of the noise, well, sometimes it can create more noise for me. And then sometimes you can quiet and it gets out of the way and you like, you get to that, about that 20 minute mark and you're all of a sudden it's like, now you have this like weird sense of clarity and um, you know, like my advice to you is just kind of let it go, see where it goes. On one day, you might find yourself thinking about bananas. The next day, you might suddenly find a clear path to something that, um, that, that makes sense. Another thing, too, is I think to try to realize you talk about listening and, and uh, you never know when you're going to find inspiration. And uh, I, it was a few years ago, I realized for whatever reason, I still don't know why, I would have some of my better and best ideas when I was mowing my lawn. And then I got busy and I paid someone to mow my lawn for like a year. And I, and I realized I wasn't having those moments and I have no idea what it was about. Maybe it was just enough keeping me busy enough to clear some of the regular BS. So I've gone back to mowing my own lawn. And this is the, if you watched me mow my lawn, you would think I was crazy because I usually stop twice. I actually put a pad of paper and a pencil in my pocket. And it's not uncommon for me to stop halfway through a pass at the lawn and write a couple of things down. So um, do, do you have any, uh, any interesting input about where you've found inspiration or what you do with it when it happens? And yeah, I mean, I, I totally agree with you. So what's interesting is, you know, if you sort of broaden the, the definition of meditation, Mowing your lawn is actually meditation for you. Right. It's well, it's just like it's repetitive, but I don't know what it is. But it's, yeah, yeah. Sure. It's any intensely focused activity, right? And yeah. so you're so intensely focused on your mind. Uh, and you know, as a as aside, I, I teach um, product management and, and agile development at, at Stanford. And so one of the things I uh, I, I tell uh, my students is you got to take some time out and do the things that you love, and let your subconscious mind ruminate on the ideas, right? Because we are, you know, our prefrontal lobe, our conscious mind is constantly just, you know, you know, fight or flee, uh, you know, type of responses. And so your subconscious doesn't get time. And so one of the things that I do before going to sleep is uh, tell, you know, just put the, 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 the problem in that, that I want to solve in my head. Think, how do I respond to this, to, to this particular question or something like that? And I just go to sleep with that. So you, lo you load the question. Yes, exactly. Okay, that's, that's interesting. Great. I like that. You load it in your head and then you go to sleep. Okay. Um, and then the other thing I do also is I think about three things that I'm grateful for before I go to sleep. And it could be the simplest thing. I think thing. that's important. Yeah, it could be a simplest thing. That, okay, I've got a you know comfortable bed to sleep in. Sure. I've got my wife next to me. Yep. Uh, and I'm going to wake up in the morning with you know two kids at home. Right. Simple things. But leave sort of, you know, some positive thoughts in your mind before you go to sleep. And, and I've woken up sometimes in the middle of the night with like, oh, that was awesome. I just figured out how to, you know, how to do this or do that, things like that. Right? I'm going to try that later. You know, one of the things, so 
you know, I mentioned, uh, you know, a lot of people that are prone to entrepreneurship and I say prone because you, you get, you're, you're like many of us are, it's in, it's in my DNA. I don't know if I know how to do anything else. I often refer to my time myself as unemployable. Like I've worked for myself for so long at this point. Like, I don't know if I would be the greatest employee or the worst, but I know that I don't want to find out. And, you know, so much of that is like, there's like a weird level of crazy to, and, and there's a fine line uh, between the definition of art. Am I a genius or am I crazy on some levels? Like you look at, at guys like Elon Musk and they'll say, oh, well, he's a genius for doing this. And then he's, you know, giving talks about how we live in a computer simulation. And, and now if he was saying that without being Elon Musk, people would be like, you're crazy. Um, do you find a difference between the two? Like, like, what's the difference between being a genius and being crazy? You didn't realize we were going to ask like mildly existential questions, huh? Oh, this is, this is, <laughs> yeah, this is uh, actually on the... By the way, this is a really tough question. It sounds really simple up front. And I'm just curious if you have some input on that. I guess my perspective is, do you even care? Okay, that's a good answer. Right, that's a good answer. Yeah. Because who you you're you're asking for a verdict from people who don't know you, who who don't understand the pains you've gone through and where you are and where you think you're going, right? So why do you like Elon Musk? Does he care? People call nope. him genius or crazy because he's on a path to to do what he's going what he's going to do, and maybe he's got everything figured out. Maybe he hasn't, but like hell, he's going to stay on that path, right? come hell or high water. So yes, I mean, some, you know, VCs may think we're crazy or we're geniuses or whatever. It doesn't really matter. And it's like, can we do this? And can, like, can I go to bed at night and say, I gave my hundred percent today and hundred percent, there's nothing, you know, there's nothing more than hundred percent. It's, there's no 105, 110%. You give you hundred percent and that's it. If, if you're satisfied with that, then yeah, wake up next day and do it all over again. By the way, I've been asking that question for a couple of years and I have a I have a couple people that I consider to be genius that and I'm not saying I am I just love their input on this and I ask them that same question and they almost they there's a couple of things we've come to well first off um, yes do you even care or does it matter and then the the if you need a more concrete tangible answer then there is no answer because the definitions provided by those on the outside looking at, and it's often strictly related to the degree of conventional success that person has achieved with whatever it is that they're doing. Like I said, the, that Elon Musk example, if he wasn't him, people would be like, oh, dude, you're, you're, you're off in left field. You're, this is crazy. But suddenly, you know, because they've had some conventional success with things, oh, well, maybe, maybe he is a genius, but... Yeah, I think in the end, um, you know, I look back at, uh, you mentioned the, the, do you even care? I think four years ago, I quit caring about stuff like that. And, um, and with that, when I say quit caring, it doesn't mean that you shouldn't care whatever other people think. I'm not saying license yourself to be an asshole, but at the same time, like, what are you going to do? What are you moving forward? Are you not creating a bunch of collateral damage along the way? Which if you, you and if you're not, you're doing no harm. So you're probably, you know, doing all right. But if you quit being worried about the judgment that other people pass on you, it frees yourself up for a whole lot of other thought. 
And, you know, like much like you mentioned, like the frontal lobe is assaulted all day with this fight or flight. So like you're seeing things all day, every day. If you let too many people's no, like no attitude or can't do or any of these things weigh you down, you're, you're wasting, you're burning calories thinking about that instead of things that have a little more value. Um, and, and, you know, I think that that's something if you can, uh, well, my, my five-year-old daughter is, runs around the house singing, let it go. Um, from frozen <laughs> and like, and, and, and I think some of the simplest solutions out there are the best, you know, Nike says, just so just do it and let it go and you'll, you'll be all right. So I love that. I love yeah, that. it's uh, there's amazing, you know, you, you mentioned having kids. I have a three-year-old and a five-year-old. I learn more from them on so many days. I'm like, uh, and, and, and I think some of it is back to that mentality of not being worried about all the other stuff, you know, like, you know, so, all right. So first off, uh, thanks for sitting down with me. It's been, uh, and thanks for welcoming us. You know, we were here in, in San Francisco, we were going to come out to TechCrunch. Uh, I, I think that, and we didn't really even discuss this, but, um, so launch KC, um, and that was someone that said yes. Right. Yeah. And, and yeah. with that, so, and I don't know what, you know, we don't have to get into that, but, you know, Launch KC is something that's been around in Kansas City for a while. It's an example of, of a business accelerator. Now, I don't like the way that they brand it because they're looking more for companies like yours, not a concept, something that's in motion, um, something as they define to me as on the way to Series A. And um, where, what's my involvement with Launch KC? Well, my company, Full Scale, provides a credit to anybody that, you know, that's just kind of it. For, well, A, it could help you out. B, it's a tryout, you right. know, and, and, and we love the relationship that we love the way they pivoted that program. Because I don't know if you know about the history. It used to just be they give away grants. OK. And so it was a $50,000 grant and they give away like 10 or 12 of them or however much they had funding for. But the problem is, is with a grant, you don't necessarily create this chain of accountability that they've done now. So now what they're doing is they're, they're using the money that they would for grants and they're reinvesting that into the other administrative and other type things in order to find companies like Black & Veatch. So Black & Veatch is the sponsor of your clean tech cohort. Uh, they have health tech and they do financial tech and they're talking about doing a couple other things. But I talked about that chain of accountability. Well, you know, business, we all need a little help along the way. You talk about pitching to a VC and they call you back and no, this isn't for us. Well, with Black and Beach, you got a really, really powerful ally there that's that's teamed up with you and has a vested interest in what you're doing. Um, how how exciting is that? And that's that's fantastic because you know, for all startups, you know, you can create you can create awesome technology and, and, and a team and, and things like that. But uh, it'll live or die based on customers and how much you know, of, of a need you can solve and how you can even get in front of customers, right? And I think that's where companies like Black & Veatch are, are you know, sort of bringing their leverage and their customer knowledge to help startups get to that escape velocity. And that's why we're super excited working with them because they, they, I mean, they also see the world in some ways similar to the way we do. They see this electrification happening. They see that there's, you know, there's massive disruption, and there's an opportunity for them to reinvent the company along the way as well. And you know, how can you partner with startups and, and borrow all these, you know, interesting ideas, and then mesh that with, with with scale and with an operational capability that's unmatched. 
and that's by the way, this is true with all the startups, all the seven startups, that, and some of them we are actually working with now very closely, and we are exchanging notes and helping each other out as well. Were you doing that before? No, so we all met at uh, in KC actually. At but the but three of you are here in San Francisco. Yeah, and one of which is here in this in this ecosystem that we're in right now. That's ironic. So Built Robotics is is one of the companies, yeah. and they were actually also incubated through Lemnos. Yep. But the first time I met them was in Kansas City at Plexpod, interestingly. Which, by the way, we have a funny story. The first time I met you, Mufi, I was speaking briefly to you guys and a live bat flew in the room. <laughs> did that, I mean, can you verify that that did happen? That did happen. And the room is now known as the bat cave. I mean, it was really the craziest thing. And I, don't, I wasn't speaking when it flew in, but I had just finished. And all of a sudden, literally a bat flew into a room that had about 25 people in it. And then for the next 20 minutes or so, it flew around the building. Um, whoever eventually opened the large garage door that was on the other side of the building and let the bat fly out should be commended because we chased that thing around. <laughs> that was the weirdest thing that, that I think I've been a part, party to in a while. So, well, it's, it's interesting that you guys are working together. One other question about that, because I think that when it comes to accelerators and these other things that that get you, you talk about finding people that that back you, that teach you, help you, you know, attain an escape velocity. How did you even hear about Launch KC? So this was, uh, so we had, uh, as part of our uh, sort of go-to-market and uh, getting the company name out, we had applied to a few accelerators. Um, and then one of the companies managing the accelerator told us, told us about the Black & Beach program. I see. And they said, what you do is a very good match for them. Yeah. Why don't you make the connection? So that was part one. And then part two, uh, in my previous life, uh, I was the uh, senior director at a company called ChargePoint. ChargePoint is the, the largest uh, charging network in, in the U.S. for consumer vehicles. Okay. And so is that like is that like the future gas station of sorts? If of sorts, sure. but but you charge at home, you charge at work, okay. uh, you charge at um, in, in retail malls, and charge points pretty much everywhere right now. Uh, and as part of my sort of job there, I had worked with uh, a few folks at Black and Beach, so they were very familiar sort of quantity. And when I first about uh, heard about IgniteX and what they were doing, I thought, okay, that's that's a perfect uh, fit. And then we had multiple conversations with the Black and Beach team, and, and, and there we are. So, and, and once again, for those of you listening outside of Kansas City, Black and Beach, I mean, I, you know, I grew up in Kansas City, so I've been around Black and Beach my whole life. I grew up with uh, other kids whose parents worked there for a lifetime. And, and they, I mean, they're a really, they're a staple of the Kansas City economy. I mean, they've, uh, you know, billions of dollars in revenue, but they do so much stuff, kind of like you said, you wouldn't expect them to be incubating and starting startups and doing stuff. But, you know, they're, they're the people that design the buildings of the future and the other stuff, like they're one of the larger like installers or in a, something involving solar panels. And, you know, you, if you think about that going forward, it takes these folks that are forward thinking and they, I can't even imagine the amount of thought and planning that goes into the things that they design there. I mean, we're talking massive buildings and, Everything yeah, they're in massive water projects, uh, construction, electrification. Uh, but what is interesting, and, and so we had, a, uh, when I was last up at KC, we had a, a sit down with the, the entire executive team uh, at Black and & Beach. And it was fascinating 
to have you know an executive team at that level sit down with startups uh, asking them you know tell us what your vision of the future is so yeah. the startup was kind of painting the vision and one of the interesting things that is happening is uh, companies can get built or destroyed very quickly there's i mean what you did for the and black and Beach is a 105 year old company yeah. right but then they know that you know and all of these companies either you realize that you're you're going to get disrupted or you disrupt and i'll give you two examples right kodak most people don't even remember who kodak was i right? do because i'm old we're old right yeah, but yeah. this generation like my kid doesn't you know my sons don't don't know what kodak is right but at one time they were you know they were you know, they were they were photography basically kodak was photography today they don't exist and then the other hand you take a company like ibm i mean they've been around for you know for probably the same time but they've kept reinventing themselves over the decades right and i think companies that take that second path will survive because disruption is happening everywhere across all segments and is happening fast right is the you know you turn around and suddenly you'll see autonomous vehicles and people will go yeah that was obvious wasn't it right and so it's it's folks that understand this part and this is something that i learned at amazon is how do you create the disruption within the company before somebody outside comes and comes and does that and smart companies i think the ones that will survive the next 100 years will be the ones that think that way now I mean, i've talked to, had the privilege of talking to you know some of our clients are are big company we have publicly traded companies and have companies of one and these large companies are are thinking exactly well a lot of them are thinking exactly that you know and they're they're buying these little startups or getting involved with them and i talked to one and I, I i can't name them due to some contractual obligations but i said why why buy this why acquire this company and they said because we need to basically we need to reinvent ourselves we need to inject some entrepreneurial and startup spirit into this company that has become big and maybe bloated right and and just like you said like the, these things are ripe for a fall so um and you know the, i mean that's that's that constant reinvention and continuing to to innovate and do a lot of different stuff. So, well, Mofi, thanks again for sitting down with me. Um, if you get a chance, go to Electrify, and that's with a P-H-I dot A-I. Check out what these guys are doing. It's electric fleet management. They have a whole bunch of different innovation tools and projects and processes that they're working out. And, you know, spend a little time thinking about all of the things that need to occur for the, you know, the, the valuable change that we want to see on this planet. And like, there's no silver bullet solution for any of it. And it takes a whole lot of people. I really commend you for what you're doing and thinking out some of these problems before they uh, all of a sudden were like, oh, wow, here's a new problem we need to solve. So do you have anything you'd like to say on the way out? Thank you. That's all. <laughs> oh, thank you. I appreciate it. And once again, anytime we get a chance to sit down with with uh, with professors from Stanford. Now, the, I think the final question is, is uh, can you get me in? Probably not. Into Stanford? Yeah, yeah. I don't think I can get myself in. Dang so, yeah. it. Dang it. <laughs> I don't think I stand a chance. But I anyway, I'm going to go fill out an application. See you next time. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Startup Hustle with Matt DeCarsi and Matt Watson. For more great content and to stay up to date, visit startuphustle.xyz. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please rate and subscribe. And we'll catch you next time on Startup Hustle.